Welcome to the Cinephile History Fit Podcast, brought to you by the Ruminations Radio Network and sponsored by Film Obsessive. This is the Tyree Film Movie Debate Podcast, hosted by two film critics, cool dads, and struggling teachers. I'm Don Shanahan. And I'm William Henry Johnson III of the tree tribe or whatever i don't know whatever yeah you seem like a tree guy more than a swimmer i'll, I'll put you there for that oh god yeah. i'd rather be swimming than in the trees oh well me, me too me too it's an ex-lifeguard i would be a swimmer too but uh ladies and gentlemen we're not talking about what kind of swimmers are we talking about not those swimmers ladies and gentlemen we're damn glad to have you folks this is all for tantrum's sake we're shared passions and high fives wash away any place for hate uh in the end no matter what we encourage you all to love what you love but for now the gloves are off and the hissy fit is on this week we're talking about avatar the way of water um we are in the process of just kind of covering our 2022 releases and this is kind of the big one the big uh the big day that people are going for and uh will and i were able to kind of revisit the first avatar we were able to kind of come into the second one and we have different feelings about it so our format is this the recommending lover is going to go first they will get five uninterrupted minutes to shower their praise and state their how many case the hater follows with five uninterrupted minutes of their own to present their counterpoints with any manner of intellectual scorched earth after that we'll open it up for about 30 minutes of shared conversation where the hiss if it really gets chippy ladies and gentlemen we're going to pandora Let's go. So I hear I'm the lover of this one, huh? You you are, which is I'm not going to say surprising, but I, I've you know mm-hmm. I've, when I when I look around the landscape and I look around some of our fellow travelers, you know that are in the cinephile hissy fit network, so to speak, the feel yeah. and film guys, and yeah. and then like the, the Laurens and and the people that are like kind of in the film community out here in Phoenix and things like that. It seems to be a general consensus that everyone loves this film. I obviously in the hater spot do not, but mm. let's hear why you love this thing. <laughs> oh my gosh. I have to say why. All right. With re- well, with reasons, the five minute clock starts now. Uh, so I'm that person who is going to give James Cameron props or respect in, in two areas that I don't think he gets enough respect in one. I think he is on another level compared to his peers as a director of action. Um, I think the man can put together action scenes, extend sequences, right place and frame cameras to be in a situation in, in the right places to to make gobsmacking amazing action. You take a look at his filmography back as far as whatever, how far back you want to go. Terminator, Terminator 2, uh, True Lies. He makes action just differently than some of his peers and contemporaries where some guys can, they, they, they're all hot, they're all hot gas, like they're like a Michael Bay where they will, the, the Bayham is there. They're going to overshoot it. They're going to overcut it. They're going to overthink it. They're going to make it gaudy. They're going to do just something outstandingly amazing for, for a very smart, very short amount of time and not get a lot out of it. The uh, classic, you know, zoo character or you know, zoo animal situation where uh, Michael Bay is a cheetah. He can run very fast for very short distances and have no cardio after that. But James Cameron, as an action director to me, just takes things where, like I said, between marrying effects, cinematography, um, acting and scope and kind of, you know, to create moments, to build to moments and then sustain them for for longer sequences. And some of his third act conclusions are just on another level where they just keep getting better and he tops himself and he tops himself. I mean, the third act of Terminator 2 from the time you were at the Skynet building and Joe Morton's dropping a bomb to the you, you're lowering, you know, uh, 
Schwarzenegger into a you know molten iron, the movie just keeps on going unrelenting fashion. And to me, not very many people can do action on his level of just yeah, just um from as a creator, as a technician, but also kind of storytelling his action. Like that guy can can storyboard and script out things that I've never seen other people do close at all um spielberg is very very good but he can he can kind of get lost in the whimsy of things where uh, spielberg's interests aren't always in purely in action where he's there to tell a larger greater thing and that's what makes spielberg amazing but cameron kind of goes to a place where i'm going to give you action i'm going to give you suspense and i'm going to sustain you and hold you here because i can kind of i know exactly when to push the accelerator and bring the accelerator down so when he does that and I feel like he does that here in Avatar where, yeah, the very beginning, we're kind of obviously recollecting where at, where things are at, you know, kind of reestablishing your place in this world. But by the time we are taken into that second act, which could be purely can get slow and be a bit of a discovery zone of like, hey, what's the water like in this planet? But you go from one sequence to another that just dazzle. Um, not just in the technical expertise that he has off the charts with the visual effects and the performance capture work that he does in this movie, but again, what he does to frame and create action. I'm astounded by every time he steps out and does it. By the time you get to that third act in this movie in that final hour, you are, and it's, it's throwdown time between the sky people and the Navi. You're, I'm there and I, I, I'm just dazzled every chance I get from whatever thing he can create and do. I, w I can't wait for the behind the scenes. Uh, production things to come out of like how he did it because i'm sit back and realize the 3d and the layering and the animations it takes to put this together and i'm just dazzled from an action director standpoint the other place that i that i feel too many people discount james cameron is as an emotional storyteller uh because even with all of the gaudy excesses that he creates he still finds a way and to me he does it with simple themes to just grab us to, to take very simple things, um, not very complicated ideas, even retreaded stereotypical ideas, and he finds a way to put them into his spectacles and just crush us. He'll do it, like I said, when we're putting, <laughs> I know now why you cry, when we're putting Schwarzenegger in molten iron, when we are looking at a married couple at the end of Abyss, where Titanic is full of them, even the marital bliss that we can kind of get out of true lies. And then you get to Avatar, and as and I'm a Dances with Wolf fan, I'm a Pocahontas fan, I'm a Fern Gully fan, I'm still swept up in the sweep of it all, where I know it's stuff, it's stuff I've seen before from a storytelling and a narrative beat, but the way he crafts it, the way he imbues it into his work i'm i'm caught up i'm caught up in the stir of the emotions and things i root for my heroes i find things to be dazzled about by the time i get to avatar 2 the dad feels for me are all over the place where i'm i'm there uh, i i don't want to have teenage sons that i that i have to train for battle and hope for survival i don't want to be where zoe saldana is with a war brother that keeps things going where i'm i i he got me. He he found a way to kind of grab me and make me invested in characters that I would not normally think I could do that are tall, blue, and have tails on them. It, it's it's absurd, the spectacle that's there. But what he does as a action director and as an emotional storyteller are things that I think are working on a level higher than his peers and contemporaries. And that's what I think of Avatar 2. That's what I think of James Cameron. And I think he's got something special that I can't wait to see more of. Nice. Um, I, I can't disagree with you about anything that you said about James Cameron. Um, I mean, 
the guy we talked on a prior episode about box office kings and you know he's got you know two of them on there um he knows how to mix um the the ideas of uh appealing to a mass audience but also uh making something prestige and entertaining and technically brilliant um you know i think both Cameron and Spielberg, right, rightly so, and and Lucas um, belongs in the discussion too. Uh, you know, helped you know spearhead the visual effects revolution. You know, uh, Lucas with Star Wars, uh, Cameron with uh, Terminator Two, Titanic, and Avatar, and Spielberg, of course, with Jurassic Park and ET and things like that. Um, he's a fascinating filmmaker. Um, I before I saw Avatar two or Avatar: The Way of Water, I proudly proclaimed he's never made a bad movie. Um, you know, he hasn't made a lot of them, which is also great for his batting average. We've talked about, you know, Steven Spielberg has made about thirty eight feature films or television films, and some vary in quality. But Cameron's really, you know, only made about. I mean, if you don't count. Piranha 2, which was taken away from him, and he never really finished, and you don't count those two documentaries, Aliens of the Deep and Ghost of the Abyss. I mean, in terms of feature films, I mean, he's he's done about nine. nine, You know, so his batting average is excellent. And I agree with everything he said. I, I think he crafts amazing motion pictures. He's a, a phenomenal action director. Uh, I really like your um, description of you know, uh, Michael Bay being kind of the cheetah who has those bursts of energy. Cause I, I'm not a Michael Bay hater, but even I admit that, you know, after a while, you know, Michael Bay, uh, you know, bores me after a while or gives me a headache. Whereas until I saw Avatar 2, I, everything I've ever watched from him, I've been engaged by. Um, yeah, he's, he's an excellent filmmaker. Um, one thing that has always been known about him <laughs> is his uh, immense ego and his, um, let's just say, aggressive nature with his filmmaking. Um, obviously, he's not one of those Me Too guys. He's just kind of the dick in the room that thinks he has the biggest dick in the room. And for the most part, he's, he's, he's been able to do that. But I, I just kind of feel that with Avatar The Way of Water, I think finally that hubris caught up to him for the first time in his career. Um, I think he's one of the greatest spectacle filmmakers ever. And I just feel like when you watch this movie, uh, it has four editors on it. It's three hours and 10 minutes long. Um, I, I just, I think he lost a little bit of control on this one. I'm not questioning the beauty of it or the craft of the visual effects and even his storytelling. I just think that, he went a couple steps too far with this film. Um, I think, and it, it, it must just be me in the minority, but because a lot of people seem to really love this, but I, I think, at least when it comes to me, uh, he thought maybe I would be in love with some of the ideas the way he is. And I make jokes about, you know, jerking off to whales for 90 minutes, but... <laughs> That's how it felt to me, because I was just like, I don't really give a shit about these whales, dude. Like, I don't need 90 straight minutes of whales. Um, it's, it is quite an accomplishment, but I, I did find myself 
for the first time ever in a Cameron film during the climactic sequence. I mean, when you think about these films, you think about Titanic, even the first Avatar, you think of Aliens, that last 15-minute sequence, which is timed exactly to the bomb detonating. When the bomb has 15 minutes, that sequence lasts exactly 15 minutes before the bomb goes off, which is just brilliant editing. I was really lagging. I don't know what it was. I was just sitting there like, this is not going to end, is it? And I, I don't know why. I don't know why I feel that way because, like you said, the craft is there. Everything is there to make this a successful feature. I just, like I said, I, I feel like for the first time he flew too close to the sun. I got you. I got you. Um, here, let's get a quick little, uh, let's take a break for a short announcement from our non-corporate partners and friends. What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futurist Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right, welcome back. No, I hear you. Um, this is, it's a lot of movie. You know, there's, there's, it is three hours. You have a whole lot of characters that you really don't know. Um, you know, a lot of names on, like, I couldn't name any of the military characters behind, behind Coral, you know, behind Quaritch. Um, Spider was whatever he was. I, I couldn't name you one of the Sea People's leaders or kids. I know it was like Cliff Curtis and Kate Winslet and then whatever teams were playing the, the ne'er do well kids and all that. But so, no, there's a lot of movie here and, there's a lot you're trying to cover. And I like the way you said it, where James Cameron is clearly in love with, you know, kind of the environmental angles that he's always put into this franchise that we can call it a franchise. Now that we're on two movies where that's been his aim. That's been his slant, like make a parallel only on an alien planet and all that, where you get that vibe from him, which is something he, you could tell is completely committed in, but it's not something that all of us are going to be just, Oh yeah, I'm with you, James. Like take me there too. And I think that detaches a lot of people and understandably so. Yeah. So it, it's tough because, you know, the thing that I think is driving both of us crazy is that never doubt James Cameron thing. Like uh, that's going around like that statement, which I get it. Like, I don't think when Titanic was coming out, people were doubting him necessarily. They just were saying like, what are we going to get with this $200 million budget? Yeah. They were questioning the money. Definitely questioning yeah, the money. I think like, people this time, this yeah. time they were questioning the 13 years. Like what took you 13 years? Well, and that that's another one of my arguments is I think you and I talked about this on another episode, or maybe we talked about this off, off the air at one point, but you know, we, I think you and I both agreed that movies, especially these tentpole things like Marvel and stuff, uh, we talked about this with Mark on an episode that will either mm -hmm. be released later or will be released before this. Um, we talked about how, like, it would be great if films went back to that three or four year gestation period. Um, yeah. You know, where, where they, they take the time to really craft these things. We, we, we won't put a release date ahead of that. Now, at the same time, I think some of the factor that went into this as well, and I don't think it's an expectation thing either, but when you do have like a 12 year period, mm -hmm. um, I just, part of me was like, Oh, is this it for 12 mm. years? Yeah. And I think 
because there's so much meandering, at least to me. Like, yeah. I, you know, I know that you're not, this is what surprises me about how much you love this because I know, <laughs> okay. that, I know, I know that in some of your criticisms of things that I have liked, like, you know, I'm a big once upon a time in Hollywood, I'm a big mm-hmm. hangout movie kind of person yeah. where I, yeah. I don't necessarily need things to be like plot driven. I, I kind of like mm-hmm. the, the time spent with characters and stuff. Okay. Um, because usually I'm the one who actually likes that stuff, and you you don't. But mm-hmm. to me, this felt like misguided hangout movie kind of stuff. Like this felt like yeah. instead of this, instead of this being Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Pulp Fiction for Tarantino, this felt like Hateful Eight to me, where it was just overindulgence mm. on the slowness. Okay. And I was just okay. kind of like, okay, I don't. I'm just not invested enough. Now, there's a couple of things that come into play with that. Okay. One. I, I just I've never been able to get behind the look of these creatures. You know what I mean? Like, okay. I, I just, that be, that's a bit of a I don't want to say deal breaker, but you got to have a little bit of that, or it, you will lose you. That's fair. I just I don't know what it is. Like when I saw the first trailer for this, I was enchanted by the imagery. You know, the mm-hmm. ocean worlds and the animals and all that stuff. And I, I feel the same way about the first Avatar, where I'm really into the world that's being created, you know, both from yeah. the nature side of it. And also, I'm a big fan of military sci-fi kind of stuff. I, I love, sure. like, exosuits and shit like that. Yeah, But yeah. I just have never been able to – I just never can buy okay. these blue people. So that that hurts because unlike the first movie, where we had, for the most part, maybe not half – but almost half of the movie, you had a human perspective. Mm-hmm. This one relies fully on your investment in these blue creatures, these Navi. And yeah. I just can't. I mean, I, I there's so little human here. And it's not uh-huh. me making the argument that computer generated effects. And so I don't, you know, I don't care about that. I'm totally no, fine. I know you don't. With that. That's right. But when that's all there is in terms of the, it, it would be like Lord of the Rings being all Gollum. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that's what it feels like. Yeah. To me. It's, it's, it, no, it, it, you need that human element, and that's very lacking here. Okay. No, my my rebuttal to this is um, what I, I don't want to say it like this. I mean, the simple way I was thinking of saying this when you were talking was like, well, one man's hangout movie is another man's world building. Whereas I watch a Hateful Eight, or I watch a Pulp Fiction, or and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and where you're hanging out and you're kind of seeing these characters step and shuffle in and about their surroundings and their hangouts and their people and their, their little scenes, you know, like you have Cliff Booth, obviously repairing a roof and remembering a time he's hitting Bruce Lee and stuff like that. And, you know, he ends up on the Manson ranch and whatnot. And I guess that counts as like exploring your so-called world. We get to watch, you know, uh, Sharon Tate, go to a movie and see herself on screen. And that's all cute and all that, but like, it's just so, it's a lot of meandering and a lot of hanging out in a small place. Whereas mm-hmm. you go to a place like Avatar and my goodness, you trade the hangout for world building and, and, and world building on a scale that most people don't have the ambition to try. So when something is going that big and that far, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm intrigued and I'm interested. And not a lot of movies to me reach that. Or if they do, how far can that really get and go? And in terms of connection with the blue creatures, the first movie had me as Zoe Saldana. Like what she does to emote and act through 
the digitization and the suits and this, you know, the well, dots on the face and the cameras. Like she's a fantastic, just emotive actress. Well, she, where yeah, when, she when her eyes credit. and her face. Oh, she's the, she's the stick that stirs the drink in both these movies. Well, because when so, she when she's in so much franchise stuff, I think people discount her. But like, I never she's will. Yeah, really, really good. I mean, just look at Infinity War. She's mm-hmm. she's like almost I'll, I'll like give you some emotional yeah. part of that. You know. Sure. I mean, for, for Zoe Saldana fans out there, I'll throw a recommendation that has nothing to do with capes and superheroes and digital effects. Go watch her on Netflix's uh, one season show. It's called uh, From Scratch, where she plays a, a Texas woman who goes to Italy for school, falls in love and marries an Italian man, brings him back to California, and they live their life. And it's a, about eight, ten episode season series or eight, ten episode series. And it's super romantic and then dramatic and tragic as it as it goes across and again not a not a special effect in the show but zoe saldana acts her ass off and i always and i've always known that she could and that's the been the best part to me about having her around in these big franchise things is she brings a legit actress and gravitas to what she can do and she can pull it off through green makeup or blue digital effects and because she's here she's a big help and the nice part about this for the sequel for me was sam worthington brought his a game and i never thought sam worthington had an a game where he's a very wooden dry guy in the first place and it's a tough one in the first one because you have that transition again between the human version of jake and then the blue version of jake whereas in this movie it's all blue version of jake and you're right you have to invest in that but him um and just uh, some of the improved effects helps a little bit, like the the you know sure. kind of the aggressive the aggressive hairstyle, the aggressive body paint, whatever you want to call it. But like, and maybe it's the maturation also of Sam as well as an actor. But like, he brings for me again the dad feels where he's an effective, good, engaging, interesting father. And again, simple stuff. And I know it's like a couple of V eight engines and a couple of cars away from being a Fast and the Furious movie of family. You know, it's it, <laughs> we're we're the, the it's not deep shit, but um, right. but he does right. it in a in a in a I don't know. He he had me. He had me in an engaging way. And you so you put so Saldana's already good. You raise up Worthington. I could give a shit about Quarch. I think they should have a completely different villain in the movie than that him. Was, um, I, you know, I want to ask you about that actually. Um, yeah. No, for okay. me, it's um you have a 13-year gap that is played as a 12-year gap in the movie of like how long it takes you know humans to get to and from Earth and six years there, six years back. Where if you're gonna do that, bring a different villain. You know, you you close an arc with courage. You don't have to redo it again. And it sounds like in this movie, spoiler alert, he's going to keep going. And I just, I love Stephen Lang. He's a ballsy, awesome, gritty actor. But you could have gotten somebody else and and push that envelope in a different way. Now here's here's the thing: the, the visual effects uh-huh. are obviously amazing. They're going to win oh, all the better. awards. Yeah, and and that's fine. I wonder, do you think this Stephen Lang thing was a late addition, even though it's been 12 years? Because no, I, I think I that's feel, his man and he wanted him. Yeah. Because I feel like his, the visual effects with him are not good. I don't know He's, if that's because yeah. I'm expecting to see Stephen Lang, but I think with him it looks bad. I don't know if it's their choice yeah. to have like – the type of crew cut hair that they're wearing modern clothes or whatever, but that doesn't help. Yeah. Something about him in this movie doesn't feel right. Like on a visual level. I I think one of the things is, and I hate to do this as an ageism thing is 
you have, I don't know how old Stephen Lang is, probably 65. Um, Sigourney Weaver is what, 65 or 70 herself. And they're animating them to play whatever age Quaritch is, at least the whatever age his avatar is. And then Sigourney Weaver, same thing, where you have a, I don't want to say a warbling, you know, <laughs> emphysema, two sheet, you know, <laughs> one foot in the grave voice, but like Sigourney Weaver doesn't sound like a 14 year old girl. You know, and you can't tweak it or auto tune it to sound like a 14 year old girl either. So when she's there doing when she I, I know Sigourney's James, you know, Sigourney and James go way back and that's great. But um, yeah, Stephen Lang, I don't think can kind of you can't paint every wrinkle off, you know, or even for Sigourney, you can't paint every wrinkle off. So but Saldana and Worthington are playing their age, whatever teen actors are there playing themselves, they're playing their age. It's oh. weirder when you have to erase more, so to speak. And I don't think it works that great. It, obviously, it's clean. It's fine for what it is, but it doesn't doesn't match the voice you're hearing. You know, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because I actually thought Sigourney Weaver was one of the stronger points of the film for me. I yeah, totally but, but I not totally unbelievable. Oh, the I, the I, the, char- the character development itself, or her playing what no, she played. Her playing the character because okay, like yeah, I've you and me have seen The Irishman. Like, there's a scene yes. in The Irishman where Joe Pesci is talking to Robert De Niro. And Joe Pesci is supposed to be 30 and Robert De Niro is supposed to be 17. And Joe oh, gosh, Pesci yeah. is saying, like, you're you look like a good kid. Like, and it sounds like a 75-year-old. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, yeah. To me, the way she played this teenage character, like, I was never thinking, oh, that's Sigourney Weaver playing a teenager. I actually believe mm. that character. But I bring that up because uh-huh. and, and and people are gonna be mad at me that I'm gonna compare this to a Transformers movie, but go for it. One thing that I was really <laughs> pissed, one thing I was really pissed off about Transformers was the first one. I mean, not only am I a big fan of the animated show, but, mm-hmm. uh, and I hate those Transformers movies, but uh, I, they did the same thing that animation people are doing now, which is you hire a name as opposed to the actor. Now, Hugo Weaving, Hugo Weaving is an amazing actor, but mm-hmm. they hired him as Megatron, and then they completely garbled his voice to the point where yeah. you don't know that it's Hugo Weaving, and you don't care. It doesn't matter. Like, Hugo Weaving doesn't yeah. matter. And the reason why I bring up the Sigourney Weaver thing is because I could not figure out who Kate Winslet was in this movie. And that to, me, yeah. that, to me, is a gigantic waste of talent. If you can't get a mm. Kate Winslet, even mm-hmm. through that, even through the motion capture. I mean, let's think about some big motion capture, motion capture characters in the last 20 years. You know, you have Gollum. Very yeah. clearly, you can see the actor in the performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have uh, Thanos. Very clearly, mm-hmm. you can see the actor in that performance. Like mm-hmm. when you are shielding Kate Winslet so much to the point, and even Cliff Curtis, I kind of recognized the I voice. Knew it was Cliff, yeah. But, and I it's, was like, sounds familiar. Like it's kind of yeah. like what they did with um, in the first one when they had Wes Studi and yes. CCH Pounder. I was like, oh, those sound yeah. familiar, but I couldn't quite place it. That to me is when you're starting to. I know Cameron isn't doing this. He's got the he's got the experience with Winslet and all that stuff, but mm-hmm. it, it just I feel like you're starting to value that visual over the performance because if I can't tell Kate Winslet's in the scene, you're not using Kate Winslet properly, is my um, point. Yeah, I, I, I could see that, but at the same time, you could tell this is a place where Winslet's here because she wants to work with James and do something in this spec. Like this isn't meant to be a a spotlight and a glamour performance for Winslet to be like, Hey, look what I was doing. Whereas when it's some of these other movies where 
look when I, especially those Transformers movies or Chris Pratt doing Mario in a couple of months like this mm-hmm. is a those are more showy places of like hey look what voice we got sure. and they're the star you know like we, other than Winslet having the resume that she has we still have a cast of characters in this movie of just non A list people even Saldana you know Saldana is a C-level player compared to every other Avenger. And Worthington's been doing what since 2009? So Stephen Lang has his own little little niche. He's going to grow up to be Rugger Howard someday. But like, um, but everyone else is kind of just them. So I'm okay with Kate Winslet hiding in the crowd. Stephen Lang has done he has done some of his uh, Rugger Howard movies already. He's done um, those Don't Don't Breathe breathe. movies. Yeah, those, are, yeah. those are hardcore Rutger Hauer movies if they made those in the 80s uh-huh. or early 90s. He also did um, uh, the Conan the Barbarian sequel where he's the bad yeah. guy. It's just like, oh, he's got... So I like that comparison. He's got major Rutger Hauer uh-huh. energy. But, but, I, but, but no, I appreciate I that this isn't... But I appreciate that this isn't like Matt Damon, Brad Pitt, you know, super duper name actors. And the yeah, funny part okay, was sure. Matt Damon turned this movie down 13 years ago. So like Which this was would a feel... huge mistake because I heard wow. that he... He was going to get a percentage of the box office. Oh, he be a I rich heard, man. Like, I, yeah, he was. I think the, based on the percentage, like he would have made like fifty million dollars. Oh like, my gosh! Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, not that he needs the money, but still, you know, no. like. Um, but 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 we but if but if Matt Damon was Jake Sully, we would all hear Matt Damon. Like, it's not like well, Sam Worthington's no, the guy. I, like, oh, it's Sam Worthington from. Well, <laughs> Uh, you, I don't even couldn't even name you a movie. So yeah, well, I'll give you I'll give you two things. I mean, we the the grand populace doesn't give Zoe Saldana enough credit for being a great mm-hmm. actress, and yeah. I think the the mass public basically because of the films that he chose after this success of Avatar, they give too much uh, crap to Sam Worthington. I don't think yeah. Sam Worthington is a bad actor. I, no, he's, he's not. He's not Jay Courtney. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, that's so funny. I was just thinking that Jay yeah. Courtney is an atrocious actor. I, I yeah. don't, I don't think it's he's Aussie that bad, imports, so. you know? Yeah. Yeah. He's so I, I actually, man. I actually think he's a good actor. So this movie, both of them work for me. I just, I don't know what the, it's tough it's for me because you, you, know, yeah. you know me, I'm not like, I'm not against visual effects stuff, you know? No, um, definitely. I know that about you. But, but you, you can get to a point. I mean, I'll defend certain Marvel films because of certain conditions. Like, there's a couple scenes in Shang-Chi that clearly they were filming during COVID and they couldn't get on location, and it's very clear that they're standing in front of a blue screen. Mm-hmm. I get that. Mm-hmm. I also I also totally understand, like, p- people like to shit on Thor Love and Thunder with the floating head thing, which is awful. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's truly yeah. awful. Yeah. But but there's also scenes in that that have astounding visual effects, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But I agree. You know, like, so there is kind of this... I'm able to separate a little bit sometimes, but but That's part fair. of that also is me going, when is it to uh, here's this is probably the most damning thing, and this will probably tell you why I feel the way I feel about this. Okay. I get massive prequel energy from this movie visually. Ah, uh, tell um, me more about this. Now, don't get me wrong, the visuals are much better than they were in the prequels because yes. the prequels, the prequels was an example of Lucas. Having a great idea just maybe 10 years too early in terms of how he wanted to film those prequels. Okay. Um, because 
there's some there's some exceptional sequences even in the worst Star Wars movies like Attack of the Clones probably the worst Star Wars movie ever made next to Last Jedi but mm-hmm. at least you have that sequence of the car chase through the city which is astounding yeah. like I don't mind the arena fight at the end that the visual of all these guys good. yeah but the thing about the prequels was this is what didn't plague the original Star Wars trilogy was he was able to introduce all of these kind of different worlds and different settings without necessarily bringing too much attention to those settings. If that makes sense. Like, I see what you mean. Tatooine is, is a desert planet, but yeah. it's, you're not like until he re-released it, it wasn't about all the uh-huh. little sand creatures popping out and all the crazy That's shit true. from the desert. Yeah. With this movie, I kind of feel like I, I, I was thinking of attack of the clones because there's a pretty nifty looking sequence in attack of the clones where, uh, Obi-Wan goes to like this, like a uh, water planet or something. And it's, it's kind of mm-hmm. cool. Like he's, he's on like a flying beast that like flies underwater, like through the waves and stuff. And it's always raining and it looks pretty cool. Yeah. But it, you could tell like that existed only to bring attention to that environment. It didn't necessarily yes. serve any kind of narrative purpose. It was, and you mentioned the arena fight. I, th- when I think of the arena fight, I think of like the 900 Jedi in the background competing for my attention as opposed mm-hmm. to what I'm supposed to be watching because it's just too much visual. And I, I just, I yeah. get prequel energy from this because I think instead of spending some of that time of this three hour and 10 minute running time f- staying on the story, there's moments of, and I exaggerate, but there's like, there's moments where it's just like, let's watch this whale for 15 minutes. And I'm kind of like, at that point, I'm, I'm thinking as a storyteller, that's where I think his hubris gets in. He's like, I'm such a good storyteller that you're going to want to watch this for 15 minutes. And the whole time I'm like, no, dude, I need you to move on now. Like, I need you to mm-hmm. move on to the story. Because I, see I, what cannot, you mean. I can't watch this for 10 yeah. straight minutes. I can't. Like, I just, yeah. it's not that compelling for me. Yeah. Like, the images, that, the images that he's holding as reverential, mm-hmm. I'm just not buying it. So, like, I, it's just yeah. like me being in a church. I'm bored to tears because I'm just like, <laughs> I don't believe any yeah. of this. So, why am I going through all this pageantry? Yeah. You know what I mean? I can, so, I, that's, yeah. that's a fair comp, you know, because, like, th- you could tell for Cameron that he takes world building to that level of detail where like the setting needs to all have something meaningful or like even in this film in, in the prequel in the first one where you know Awa but you know the universal connection of all living things and like all that stuff is in play which means that you you have he makes you with that in play he's creating enough things in front of you to go like well this needs to be this and this needs to be that and this is going to matter for this and this is going to matter for that where that is a lot i grant that um, I'm all for it because like, that's, uh, I don't know. It's just something rich and new and different where I don't know if that's the, 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 the school teacher explorer dork in me or whatever like that. But like, I, I, I will sit in front of a blue planet documentary narrated on Disney plus and, and be enthralled at something I haven't seen. And I don't mind if it's, if it's methodical, if it's showing me details, I don't know. Um, but you're right. Yeah. The challenge is if you're not into that, that's a slog. And I, well, I, can, other- I can, I can grant that. The other For problem with that, that too, when you mention those Disney documentaries, I mean, I've seen some fantastic nature documentaries. Yeah. But generally, other than like that Earth series, which is like a number of episodes, those movies are like an hour and 10 minutes long. Mm-hmm. They're not three yeah, hours. Three hours is long. long. You know what I mean? So, yeah, you know, I, I, 
Yeah, if there's a flaw, like I give this movie four stars. The flaws that take it down from something like five is I could give a shit about Quaritch, where like you could do better, you could do better villain than him. I love Stephen Lang, but bring somebody new. Um, and then yes, three hours and ten minutes is a lot and too much. Um, there's different like when you have the when the even the what was it in the end sequence where the kids, um, the little girl that the youngest uh sully kid yeah. uh the yeah. precocious little one when she's like i can't believe i'm tied up again i'm like no shit i can't believe we're tied up again too can we move on so like yeah, well, even <laughs> some of that even some of that ending sequence you could clip and shorten a few confrontations there where or the same gunpoint come out sully bullshit is there four times and like some of that could be molded a little bit differently and then of course that second act has some like if you're not into the swimming with the whales and discovering the world that that could be a long time or you maybe no. you can do that in shorter ways so um no, I think yeah i i length length a few choices here a few choices there i can give a shit about spider and quaritch like i would shave all that shit off like if it was just no. like if it was just the boat people that showed up i would be fine with that now i think there are very few writer directors out there now that control their own fate i mean i think you know spielberg uh -huh. spielberg will obviously be able to make whatever he wants regardless yeah. of the box office uh christopher nolan seems to be one of those that can make whatever he wants cameron obviously can make whatever he wants um but because it's been 12 years and the when you think about it when the first avatar came out the mcu was only two films deep at that point <laughs> you mm -hmm. know now, yeah. a lot has changed in the industry in terms of how stories are told and marketed and stuff like that. Now, I know that he, you know, the big ongoing joke for the longest time was that he had like six sequels or something. And the joke was like, oh, they're never going to come out. Right. And, and But mm -hmm. now we know that they're going to come out. Yeah. Do you think that there was any, I mean, like I said, he can probably do whatever he wants. But he, yeah. do you think there was any pressure to... I mean, I know he has to continue the story, but when you think about the first one and this one, mm -hmm. other than the characters, I mean, you're in a whole different setting. A lot of the yeah. events, other than the villain from the first film, really don't play into, like, like it's not like the, um, like, I mean, kind of the people came back from the first uh -huh. one, but unobtainium is not a thing anymore. And right, they're here for this. There's serum from the brain. There's there's a MacGuffin in play, no matter what. There's all yeah. kinds of stuff. But I guess what I'm saying is the difference between the first and the second one. It's not like it's not like what happens to them in this one truly affects the plot of the next one, like in traditional franchise um, filmmaking. But yeah. But but here's the thing with Quaritch or whatever Stephen Lang living, you know, mm. like that rubbed me the wrong way too because I was just like, yeah, oh, of course he's going to be back because now we're in a franchise. You know what I mean? Like, whereas when he dies in the first one, I'm like, that was a badass character to lose. But hey, you lost. Yeah. I mean, it was worth it. And it oh, and you a good I mean? death too. You're like fantastic battle scene to have that pull off. Yeah, um, for sure. No, for me, um, I I accept this. I think the pressure that Cameron likely had was, I guarantee he heard all the Dances with Wolves, Pocahontas, Fern Gully pushback. <laughs> so like, all right, you when whenever you get to the next one, you you can't do that shit again. So what can you do? And maybe part of that is, I don't want to say tail between his legs for 12 years, 13 years or whatever, but like, I, I liked that this movie, other than the quarter shit, um, mm. used, used, the, used the actual 
passage of time. Because if this was a sequel that took place a year after the first one and we had to rewind our brains to 2009 and where this family was and all that, we'd be like, okay, now we're just pouring something on. But um, mm-hmm. but to do the, hey, they're parents now and, you know, fathers of teens and the the sky people come back and like, don't just have a look like a little hut of place for the obtainium. No, they've scorched the earth, built a fortress of a fortress that's going to be a problem in next couple of movies. And like there's a foothold better than a foothold there. Like they came in quick, maybe too quick in the first bit of the movie. But um, no, I think by having this story and I know I gave the fast and furious bullshit about family earlier, but like to have this story not be, a straight lift from something we're already po- fin- finger pointing as easily as we did in the first movie, mm-hmm. I think helps. It's still too long. It's still oh, too yeah. much. It's still the wrong villain, but it's, the, I think yeah. the pressure for him was tell something extend, tell something else. And he did by not dwelling on unobtainium and Giovanni Ribisi and more tree shit. We've gone to the sea. He hired, he has two screenwriters here instead of himself. So he's got somebody in the writer's room going, hey, James, can we <laughs> you, you know, rein a little bit of this in or a little bit of that in? And I don't know how much they have power they have, but they're, you know, Rick Joffa and Amanda Silver are good screenwriters. They did the, I, I love the Planet of the Apes trilogy they put together. I have great faith in what they can do. And I'm I'm also trying to bring the patients to be like, hey, let's see what they can do going forward. But I think that's, I, I think that's Cameron's challenge. I, Cameron will tell you his challenge was probably I needed to wait for the tech to pull this off. No, he had it. I think it was more I need storytelling and time to be on my friend and wash people's. Why did I like that taste on my mouth? Because like we were talking about this in our box office Kings episode of like we have a lot of Avatar haters who are probably not realizing, hey, it was better than you remember it being. Well, it's it's and that's funny because I think people. Hate started hating Titanic too, and I don't know why they started doing. Oh, that. I, uh, you know, I don't know why that. either. And yeah. yeah, I don't know, but I will say with Cameron, if he does have a weakness in all of his films, mm-hmm. and it works sometimes based on the actors he has around him, is okay. like Lu- like Lucas, who is who's also a visual storyteller more so than a writer. Um, his characters can be pretty broad. I mean, like, this is true. Like, like Titanic, I mean, Jack and Rose are great characters because they're played by great actors. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, like when you write down, oh, yeah. like the qualities about what Jack is, you kind of get some template answers. You know what I mean? Like it's not—they're not the deepest, darkest, three-dimensional characters. You know what I mean? And e- you can even say yeah. that about something like Alien. Aliens, I mean, where mm-hmm. you kind of got the archetypal—you know. The only thing the only thing he's really good at doing though is is switching it uh, from a gender perspective. Like he's really good at like yeah. you know making women kind of like more of like like even mm-hmm. in True Lives he put Tia Carrera as one of the henchmen or you know he has um, Jeanette oh, yeah. Goldstein at, you know yeah. in Aliens kind of being the the baddest ass of all of them. But you're mm-hmm. still you're still dealing with like like templates or archetypes of people. So not his strongest suit. Yeah. And that might be another, another I, I think, one. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I think, and I and I say to my, I know I said in my review somewhere, but like to me, I mean, the simple simple works. There's not a lot of effort to have to go deeper than simple. When if you're good, all right. If your storytelling is simple, but your world building is crazy and immense, and that's your detail, that can that can that it can work. That's a reasonable mix. It can work. Um, it's not always the best. We've seen crazy world building that 
can't like i know same thing like i use michael bay again but like michael bay wants to make a transformers universe where like we're rewriting king arthur we're rewriting prehistoric (laughs) history like he thinks he's world building like he thinks he's doing something crazy and inventive and cameron level we're like no man you're just fucking with history you know um and then to make your movies have fake gravitas uh you don't have to you have these amazing robots just totally amazing robot stuff you don't have to do anything bigger than that and then i think cameron's the opposite he's like i've got this huge amazing world i just need to tell a great simple story in this world so he's doing an opposite thing and i think you can play um i'm but i i i'm trying to pause and go like now that this is going to be three four five movies I have to pump the brakes and go. All right, let's let's see what happens. If yeah, it's just quarters for six movies, I'm going to be checked out soon too. Yeah, I, I'm I'm going to still give it a shot because I think, I, like I said, I mean, if James Cameron is, uh, I always make this argument about Metallica too. You know, one of the, my favorite band and one of the greatest bands ever. You know, they make one bad album and everyone's like, they suck now. It's like, yeah, but think about mm-hmm. it. They made one bad album out of like eleven. That's a pretty damn good batting yeah. average. You know what I mean? Like, so I'm <laughs> yeah. not going to let like one James Cameron movie, the first one, in my opinion, that's ever let me down, like deter me from mm-hmm. James Cameron forever because the history is just too good. For And you never know. Yeah. Maybe the next one, which is going to have Michelle Yeoh in it, by the way. Um, now we're talking. Will, will, you know, make this one better. You know, um, mm-hmm. I think I think so, there's a possibility know. for that because then yeah. maybe you'll start seeing I mean, the connections. You'll start seeing the connections yeah, a yeah. little. You know what I mean? Like between what is yeah. I don't think, no matter how good the third one is, and fourth or fifth, whatever, I don't think we're going to come back to this one and go, wow, this was Empire Strikes Back. Like, this isn't that, I think there's enough stakes and things raised and worlds built to be a worthy step-up sequel, but I don't think we're going to come back here and go, whoa, look at the the breadth and storytelling and stakes that are quite here. Like, I don't know if we'll get there someday. I'd love it if we do. For all we know, we might come back and go, wow, look how, look where we got from here, but who knows? So we have to have a lot of patience. Yeah. Whew. You want to, this is going to be good. Any final thoughts on this one? Um, I, 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 yeah, just the spectacle had me. I, I can't wait to see what he could do next. The man always surprises us and he always finds a way to grab us. So I'm, I'm there no matter what. You know, good, good, bad. I will watch what he does. He's he's a marvel. He he's something special. Yep, yep. I I definitely agree. I'm not losing my faith in James Cameron, and I'm not doubting him for all you weirdos out there. Yeah, never doubt James Cameron. But I also think we also live in a film criticism world now, where like if you're an established name that made great movies, like you can't possibly make something bad. I'm not not saying you're Mm. saying that. I'm not saying a lot of people, but like. For example, yeah. like I know I do. Yeah, I I'll... like you know me. Spielberg's like one of my all time favorites, but I'll tell you straight up uh-huh. that Bridge of Spies is boring. Like you know what I mean? Like oh, I don't BFG's mind boring. doing yeah. that, but like people mm-hmm. will like be like, "Well, Scorsese never made a bad movie," and it's like, "Well, I don't know. I mean, he's, <laughs> there's a couple that maybe didn't work, and Francis Ford Coppola has definitely agree. made some bad movies." But like yeah. we get to this period now where it's like, "Well, Cameron was so good that there's no way he can make something bad," and it's like, "Okay, well, I mean." It's the the best example I can come up with for you in terms of my extremes is Damien Chazelle. Uh-huh. How I mean, sure five five stars for Whiplash, half a star for La La Land, three and a half for <laughs> Babylon. I mean, 
yeah. if I'm not buying into the name necessarily, like, uh-huh. will I usually like look at a name and think like, oh, I'll probably like that because of that person? Yes, but sure. like, I think we're losing our ability to just like, and I was talking about the mass public in general, not you or anybody else, but we're sure, losing sure. our ability to say like, oh, well, Cameron, don't doubt him because he's never made a bad film. Yeah, but my counter is. He finally made one here, <laughs> you know, and it's okay. Yeah, like, it's okay. If I think it the, work. yeah. The thing for me is like, if this is Cameron on his lowest or worst day, it is so much better than some people's best day. Where oh, I, I'll sure. take it, and it, and like, I, and I'm I, I'm a five star guy with La La Land. Where like, if 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 the worst Chazelle ever is 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 whatever Babylon was at three three and a half. I, that's not a bad place to be and Absolutely. yeah even even me even me when i dog tarantino like tarantino if his worst day is the hateful eight for me he still makes Ugh. like he's still pretty darn good so it, it but, there's, but there's day. stuff to still appreciate <laughs> yeah oh but um but no like but um yeah. but yes yeah, the thing like i'll still take james cameron even on his worst day simple as that absolutely absolutely all right well that seems like a good place to end so all the listeners out there, I want you to follow us on Twitter at Cinephile Fit and on Facebook at Cinephile Hissy Fit Podcast and Instagram at Cinephile Hissy Fits, I believe. Find both of us by name on Letterboxd to check out our film reviews and ratings. We are also on Rotten Tomatoes and are charter members of the Independent Film Critics of America. We appreciate your loyal viewership and listenership in our tussles and for connecting with us on social media. Cinephile His Fit is a Ruminations Radio Network podcast sponsored by Film Obsessive and 25YL Media. If you enjoyed this show, the Ruminations Radio Network has more excellent programming with stellar hosts and spirited topics. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our show and others on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you find your favorite podcast.